You know, as we um, talk about Queen Elizabeth II, as her coffin was in St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, as she's going to be, it will be taken to London, and on the 19th there will be the state funeral. We look back over an era, 70 years, but the Queen's life of 96 years has allowed us to peek back into the changes in history and to look back sometimes with fondness and sometimes with shock at the passage of time. And nobody's done that better through a Canadian lens, especially through the conflicts that have defined us than Tim Cook. 13 books on Canadian military history. His new book, which I have in front of me, is called Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, Medical Care and the Struggle for Survival in the Great War. It's out today. And when you hear the story of literally body snatchers, it'll shock you. But Tim Cook is also here to reflect upon the service of the Queen during the Second World War and the future King Charles III. Tim Cook, uh, what a, what a, first of all, congratulations on the new book, and always a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks, Evan. Great to, great to be on the show. And um, yeah, each book feels a little different, but uh, it's nice to see this one come out. Tim Cook, let's start talking about Queen Elizabeth. Um, the pictures that we always see of her as a, not only a truck driver, but as a mechanic in the Second World War, kneeling in front of this truck, um, I think she was 13 when the war broke out and 18 when she sort of start, started to serve. What was her service in the war and how did that define, maybe change her for her life? Yeah, I love that story and I love those photographs. And, you know, we've all been reflecting, I think, on her incredible service to the British Empire, the Commonwealth, uh, as our queen. Um, and, you know, Evan, you and I, we've spoken to veterans for many years, and I, I had the privilege of speaking to great war veterans, to Second World War veterans who are now average age about 95 or 96 years old, Korean War veterans, Cold War veterans, and more recently veterans of Afghanistan. And one of the things that I've often heard uh, from veterans, especially from those of the Second World War, was how uh, Queen Elizabeth II, then princess, uh, had served, that she was one of them. Um, and often I had heard this from the 50,000 or so women, Canadian women, who served in the armed forces in our uh, Second World War conflict. And they were very proud that uh, the princess at the time um, had not taken an easy job, right? She was a driver, she was a mechanic, she got her hands dirty. And when she passed away, that was something that I just, I thought about. And, and I thought about our Canadian veterans and their connection to her uh, and how she had that um, uh, common touch when she was anything but that. But I think that service during the Second World War is perhaps just a, a slight glimpse or an indication of mm. that. She, she also, by the way, uh, took military history and, and her role very seriously. She, she talked much about the military and, and uh, it defined much of her reign, of course, the, the, the various conflicts like the Cold War, the various wars, the Falkland Wars, the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, and then, of course, her, her children and great-grandchildren all served. Yeah, this is part of part of the monarchy. It is service in, in multiple and, and many ways, but including military service. And we can remember when Harry, I think, Prince Harry, was in Afghanistan, there was great fear that he might be killed, uh, as is always the possibility for, for our men and women to go in harm's way. Uh, it extends even back to the Great War, where the Prince of Wales, for a brief period in late 1918, later to be King Edward VIII, he served with the Canadian Corps. 
And uh, there are some wonderful pictures of very boyish-looking uh, Prince of Wales with the Canadians, with Sir Arthur Currie, our Canadian general. And again, there was a lot of worry that um, that he would be wounded or perhaps, in the worst case, uh, killed. So that service, which continues, um, is so integral, I would argue, to um, that service uh, mm-hmm. of the monarchy. Well, of course, and, and Queen Elizabeth's husband, Prince Philip, he also served. What, what, how important is that military aspect to the new king, Charles III? Well, he, he has served, of course. I, I think it's absolutely integral. He is uh, honorary colonel of, of many regiments. Um, and there's a bearing, there's a presence there. There is, as you also say, I think an understanding of our history. And um, although I'm a military historian, and I wouldn't reduce all of Canadian history or British history to military history, you, you simply can't understand the history of our country and our development without some sense of, of how war has shaped us. I think of the two world wars profoundly changing us, the Cold War, the, the wars in, in, of um, uh, post-9-11. Um, I just think of, uh, in Ottawa, the Books of Remembrance, where there are more than 115,000 Canadians listed there who have died in service of the country. And I think um, all of that uh, reminds us, and now in the case of King Charles III, of, of the importance of understanding the past, um, and I think he understands his uh, crucial role in this larger realm of, of war and conflict and hopefully the search for peace. Uh, Tim Cook, author of 13 books. Your new book, Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, Medical Care and Struggle for Survival in the Great War, is out today. Now, you know, Queen Elizabeth was born after this, the First World War, but in the wake of it, right, that's the generation uh, that thought that was the war to end all wars. Of course, they were sadly mistaken, and the Great War happens and wars have continued again. But to tell us about this book, because this is a book about a medical history of the war. And this dovetails with another moment in the present, not just not just the monarchy, but the pandemic. And it's like we're living through a mirrored times here. Talk about that. <laughs> yeah, Evan, uh, I began to write this book in April of 2020. And of course, we were deep in, in the pandemic at that point. I, I think we all hoped it would be over in a couple of months. Um, and I, I was thinking at the time about the 1918-1919 pandemic that swept around the world, that killed 55,000 Canadians, 55,000, killed 50 million worldwide. And I, at the time, we were all grasping for historical analogies of what we were going through, the fear, the lockdown, um, the unprecedented um, state intervention in the lives of uh, Canadians and around the world. And there was really only the two world wars, but the pandemic was a part of that and and that that's what started the book of course the the medical doctors and nurses that i write about in lifesavers and body snatchers were were trying to deal with that virus um uh, unsuccessfully i should add and, and how did they was it was there the same kind of um polarizing impact it had that we see today no uh it doesn't appear to be, but they didn't have a lot of success. In fact, they thought it was a bacteria at the time. Uh, they instigated some what we would call social distancing now and some masks, but they really didn't have much to treat the those who came down with the virus, part of the reason why it was so deadly at the time. Um, but it's part of a larger story that I talk about in the book on preventative medical care. And again, as you're saying, the, the present seeping into the past or the past bleeding into the present – 
we, we were talking about that and continue to talk about that, the obligations and the necessity of preventative care. And the doctors um, during the war, uh, they helped to ensure that the Canadian Expeditionary Force, our fighting force overseas, of which the fighting arm was the Canadian Corps, didn't dissolve into a mob of diseased soldiers. And, and they probably should have, right? We know the trenches of the Western Front, the uh, incredible artillery bombardments that shattered bodies and mines, machine gun fire, chemical weapons, the introduction of tanks, and all in this uh, horrifically dirty environment. Um, disease should have run wild because disease had killed almost every army uh, up to that point in history, long sieges. They are, uh, disease is the great killer, viruses and bacteria, but that wasn't the case during the First World War because of the, the incredible work and care of Canadian doctors and nurses. Okay. Well, now we get to a point that is not just an example of how incredible and brave and remarkable the men and women who worked to save our soldiers were. And Tim Cook is breaking a, a story here, and we're going to take a break. But he, the book is called Lifesavers and Body Snatchers. And you might think, what do you mean body snatchers? I'm going to just tease what we're going to talk about, because Tim Cook, for the first time in history, ex- uncovers a story of harvesting of human body parts. You heard me right, folks. Harvesting human body parts in medical units behind the lines of the First World War. He's been investigating this for a decade, transporting lungs, bones, brains, and organs to the Royal College of Surgeons, body parts removed from the dead. Why did this happen? Tim Cook is going to unveil this shocking story next and why it's so important. Private William Gerard Arthrell of the 25th Battalion was shot through the head on March 25th, 1916, while serving in the trenches of the Western Front. The bullet, he stayed alive for 13 hours. Bullet entered his brains. But when he was buried, the young man's bullet-furrowed brain had been removed as a prized pathological sample. You might be thinking, what am I talking about? I'm reading from Tim Cook's new book, Lifesavers, and Body Snatchers, Medical Care and the Struggle for Survival in the Great War. What you may be shocked to know is that on the battlefield, they were harvesting body parts from fallen Canadian soldiers and putting them in museums, and they weren't even hiding it. In fact, they were displaying the body parts in Hamilton, Ontario, for other doctors and pathologists and writing stories about them. There was no shame in this. They were, they were harvesting body parts. Tim Cook wrote the book, and he's with us now. This is shocking to me. Tell me why. What was, what was this? When did you first hear about this? And, and what was going on, the, the harvesting of human body parts uh, behind the lines? Yeah, Evan, it, it is shocking, and it's a story I've been trying to run to ground for about 10 years. And I know you as a journalist, you have a number of stories I'm sure that you've been tracking as well. For me, I came across a couple of stray references about 10 years ago about autopsies conducted behind the lines, autopsies in hospitals by Canadian doctors on killed Canadian soldiers in the First World War. I thought, that, that's interesting. I didn't know that had happened. I've written a lot of books on the First World War. I thought, well, I'd better find out more about this. And I began to look through the National Archives, the secret records there, and I couldn't find anything. 
And I, I went back, I wrote other books, my book on Vimy, my book, The Secret History of Soldiers, my book we talked about two years ago, uh, The Fight for History. Each time I would research for those books, I would go back to the National Archives, researching in the files, but looking for these autopsy files. And I finally, finally found them. And they revealed the shocking story that Canadian doctors were part of an imperial or British program to not only do autopsies, but then to extract the body parts. And as you mentioned at the top there, the, the brains, um, the, the lungs that had been damaged by mustard gas, spines that had been severed by shrapnel, um, uh, legs that had been uh, shattered beyond belief. And, and that, when the soldier died, the doctors would uh, literally take out the bones and reconstruct them. And I just, I couldn't believe I mean, it. I mean, there's pictures in your book, like... A human lung with a piece of shrapnel piercing it, a human yeah. heart. Like, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I, and I just, I, I kept thinking, how could we have been doing this to Canadian soldiers? How could I not know about it? I've been studying the Great War for 25 years, but it's there in the book. I found the files. There's photographs. There are uh, drawings of the pathological samples, as they called them. And it really shook my confidence because I, this is the war where we had talked about the sacred fallen. This is the war where Canadians were fighting for king and country. They were fighting to liberate France and Belgium. But um, when they signed up, um, their bodies were owned by the state. And that extended, as I have now determined in my new book, to after death, where they were continue, expected to continue to serve after death. Our glorious dead, if you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep through po though poppies grow in Flanders' field. That is how we think about honoring the dead. No one thought that honoring the dead meant harvesting their body parts. No, you're exactly right. And the right, families John. never knew. The fa God forbid the families then knew that, oh, um, your son has been killed and we've secretly harvested his body parts. That's right. And that's, those were the questions that were going through my head as I was reading the files and trying to make sense of this and situating it within the time. And of course, the, the first part of the book as in Lifesavers. It's about the care of soldiers and the evolution of care, surgical care, blood transfusions, the use of x-rays, learning from the dead. But I never thought that it would extend to the harvesting of these body parts, putting them in museums, and then sending them back to Canada after the war. 799 body parts sent to McGill University, the premier medical university at the time, and probably still to this day. Um, and they were put on display, as you said. And so this was not a secret, although it wasn't well known, I think. But even that was shocking to me, that Canadian body parts, British soldier body parts, because they were mixed up, came back to Canada in the early 1920s. This is the time when we're building thousands of memorials across this country to the fallen, to the 66,000 dead from the war, where we begin to build Vimy, the Vimy Memorial, and the Peace Tower and others. And yet we have this contradiction where we have soldiers' body parts mm. that are here to be studied by medical students. And by the way, everyone, again, no secret, Robert Borden, as you write, the Prime Minister, toured them. I mean, he saw them. They, what were they using them for? What was the purpose here? 
you're right. Borden saw them. I, I just couldn't believe that. Um, there's an order in council devoting money to this so that they could be catalogued. They were meant to be teaching specimens. They were meant to teach the next generation. And as you said at the top, this was supposed to be the war to end all wars, and lest we forget. But it really, I, I just, I can't square that with the harvesting of body parts, uh, not telling the next of kin. Um, and then uh, putting them on display for, uh, in effect, there was a newspaper account in Hamilton which said that thousands of uh, Canadians lined up to gawk, to gawk at these body parts. Mm. And so they were part of a teaching uh, curriculum at the time, but there's a really interesting element. In 1922, um, as as we're building memorials across the country, and that's the year where uh, Walter Allward goes overseas to begin work on the Vimy Memorial, the Department of National Defense, or what would become DND, I think realizes it has a problem. And you can see that in the files, and they realize they should not have these body parts. They do not want them. They were supposed to be for a medical museum that was never built in Ottawa. And they they say to McGill, you hold on to these things. And in fact, they stay at McGill University for the next 30 years. There's one more element here in the minute I've got. I'm speaking to Tim Cook, author of this remarkable new book that does um, uncovers absolutely new and shattering history, lifesavers and body snatchers. Um, you just write something personal. I want people to know, and Tim, you and I have spoken about this. Um, I, you said, I want to thank the doctors and nurses who worked together to save my life from cancer. I went through multiple rounds of treatment. You write radiation, chemotherapy, stem cell before the cancer was destroyed. Um, and you said, during all the time I was at the Ottawa hospital, I was surprised to discover how doctors read military history. The history of this book is really the foundations of the medicine that saved your life as well, Tim. It is, yeah. And, and Evan, uh, I've been through cancer, and uh, sad to say I'm fighting cancer again. And um, ten years ago when I was passing through my first round of cancer, I, I was just amazed at the nurses and the doctors and not only the incredible care, but just how they understood their history. They understood their place in history. And, you know, I would talk to oncologists who would tell me stories that they had encountered. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to write a book one day um, and maybe share that with the doctor? So that, that is one of the reasons why I wrote this at, at one point, to, to understand um, those doctors and nurses who served over 100 years ago, how they brought back the lessons of war and how they really helped to save the lives of so many generations of Canadians. Uh, Tim Cook, uh, author of Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, a remarkable new book. Good luck to it. And your fight continues, my good friend. Um, I've learned more from you than from any historian. I I thank you. We love having you on the program. Take good care, my friend. Congratulations on the book. 